y'all. My name's Abby. I'm a freshman, and I'm going to read tonight's passage from Judges 16, 1 through 31. One day, Samson went to the Philistine town of Gaza and spent the night with a prostitute. Word soon spread that Samson was there, so the men of Gaza gathered together and waited all night at the town gates. They kept quiet during the night, saying to themselves, When the light of morning comes, we will kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the town gate, including the two posts, and lifted them up, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and carried them all the way to the top of the hill across from Hebron. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah, who lived in the valley of Sorek. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, Entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me what makes you so strong and what it would take to tie you up securely. Samson replied, If I were tied up with seven new bowstrings that have not yet been dried, I would become as weak as anyone else. So the Philistine rulers brought Delilah seven new bowstrings, and she tied Samson up with them. She had hidden some men in one of the inner rooms of her house. She cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson snapped the bowstrings as a piece of string snaps when it is burned by a fire. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Afterward, Delilah said to him, You've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now please tell me how you can be tied up securely. Samson replied, If I were tied up with brand new ropes that had never been used, I would become as weak as anyone else. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him up with them. The men were hiding in the inner room as before, and again Delilah cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But again, Samson snapped the ropes from his arms as if they were thread. Then Delilah said, You've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now tell me how you can be tied up securely. Samson replied, If you were to weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric on your loom and tighten it with the loom shuttle, I would become as weak as anyone else. So while he slept, Delilah wove the seven braids of his hair into the fabric. Then she tightened it with the loom shuttle. Again, she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson woke up, pulled back the loom shuttle, and yanked his hair away from the loom and the fabric. Then Delilah pouted, How can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. She tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. Finally, Samson shared a secret with her. My hair has never been cut, he confessed. For I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head was shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as anyone else. Delilah realized he had finally told her the truth, so she sent for the Philistine rulers. Come back one more time, she said, for he has finally told me his secret. So the Philistine rulers returned with the money in their hands. Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head in her lap, and then she called in a man to shave off the seven locks of his hair. In this way, she began to bring him down, and his strength left him. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him and gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza, where he was bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in the prison. But before long, his hair began to grow back. The Philistine rulers held a great festival, offering sacrifices and praising their god, Dagon. 
They said, Our God has given us victory over our enemy, Samson. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now in our power. Half drunk by now, the people demanded, Bring out Samson so he can amuse us. So he was brought from the prison to amuse them, and they had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. Samson said to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, Place my hands against the pillars that hold up the temple. I want to rest against them. Now the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there, and there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who were watching as Samson amused them. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. O God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple. Pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, Let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire lifetime. Later, his brothers and other relatives went down to get his body. They took him back home and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel, where his father Manoah was buried. Samson had judged Israel for 20 years. Tonight, we're going to talk about what Abby just read, this story of Samson. Maybe you've heard it as Samson and Delilah growing up, uh, but we'll look into this in just a moment. But let me pray for us uh, before we do. Jesus, the story that Abby just read, we need to hear. It's a tragic one. And there's too many commonalities with our stories in our lives. His, his life looks too familiar to ours. Oh, how we need a, a deliverer. Oh, how we need a savior tonight more than ever. And we have hope and confidence that there is one in heaven, you, who rules at the right hand of the Father as our deliverer, our judge, our savior, our redeemer, our friend. So come and be all of those things to us tonight that you are. We pray through this weak little moment of talking about your word. Come and bring power, we pray. Amen. Well, back in 2007, um, John Piper, who's a pastor a lot of you have heard of and known about, he's a pastor up in Philadelphia or uh, Minnesota, was the keynote speaker at the Passion Conference in the early days of that conference in Atlanta. And he shared a message that caused a big stir. And his message was based on an event 20 years prior that caused a big stir back then. Excuse the lengthy quote, but this is some of what uh, he opened that talk that night back in 2007 saying. He said, the closest that I've ever come to being fired from being pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in the last 26 years was in the mid-1980s when I wrote, uh, think about this, the mid-1980s, when I wrote an article for our church newsletter called Missions and Masturbation. I wrote the article after returning from a mission conference in Washington, D.C., led by a missionary, George Verwer. Verwer's burden in that conference was the tragic number of young people like many of you who at one point in their lives dreamed of radical obedience to Jesus and were joyfully willing to lay down their lives and sacrifice anything to make Jesus known among the nations, but then faded away into useless American prosperity because of a gnawing sense of unworthiness 
and guilt over sexual failure that gradually gave way to spiritual powerlessness and the dead-end dream of middle-class security and comfort. Almost done. He said, what broke George, George Werner's heart back in the 80s and breaks mine today is not simply that you've sinned sexually, he told them, but that this morning Satan took your late night encounter in the hotel room, whether it was on TV or in bed, and he told you, see, you're a loser. You may as well not even go to worship today. No way you're going to make any serious commitment of your life to Jesus Christ. You might as well go back to school and get a degree and a good practical education and then get a good job so you can buy yourself a big widescreen TV and watch sex until you drop. I bring that up tonight. And Piper, I think, brought it up that time not to be gratuitous or provocative. But I brought it up. I thought of it because this is the conversation that we have when we get together and talk, right? A lot of our conversations kind of hover around this, these things, sexual failure, regrets, addictions or habits. Maybe you're just coming to grips with them. Pornography, masturbation, fantasies that have embedded themselves in your mind. And they bother you and you don't want them to be there, but they're there. And these are the things that we sit around and talk about. These are the things that are the monkey on your back. And for some of you, I get it. This is not the particular area. It's not the particular shape of your struggles, but those regrets and the shame, just like those people inhabit your life too, right? And it's not just something that I I kind of know and from an arm's length way as your campus minister, like, oh, I get this. This is a problem for y'all. And I'm aware of it because you struggle with it. When I was an intern here, I mean, it was around the time of this passion talk. So 2007, 2008, um, I was a member here at Redeemer and I'd been a member here for a few years. And, you know, every year there's what's called officer nominations and they elect people will nominate um, people from the congregation to be, to, to be trained and to serve in the office of deacon or elder. And I got nominated to to be a deacon. And I remember going home the night after I heard that that had happened. And I flipped to first Timothy chapter three, where Paul delineates the qualifications of a deacon. And I remember not even getting a full sentence through there. And I just felt just devastation creeping in and just like a physiological response, like a tightening and a despair set in of, I can't even get past a sentence of the qualifications of someone to be a servant in the church without immediately just being struck with this sense of I'm not qualified. Um, Now, that's almost a separate issue. I was young in my faith. There are disqualifying issues for being officers and leaders in the church. There are certain places of maturity and gospel maturity you need to be at there. But I was reading those things as basically because of the shame and the regret, the struggles, the how easily tempted I was and how easily proud I got when I wasn't tempted. That these these have to be disqualifying. How could God ever use somebody like me? And so I was like, I immediately shifted into. So how do I tell them that I'm not the person they think I am? And how do I tell them I'm not qualified 
to even go further in the process. So I went back and I told him, you got to take my name out of the hat because it doesn't belong there. And I wasn't living a secret life. God had been kind to me and he'd given me the grace of, you know, confession and, and my secrets were on the table by that point in my life. But I was just debilitated by that thing that Piper was talking about, this sense of just shame that you can't be seen in public. God will never really use you. And I know whether it's because of sexual failure or regret or because of other issues in your life, of other things in your past or your present, there's a lot of you that live under this reality as well. Am I too bad for God to use? And some of you are even asking a more fundamental question. Am I too bad for God to save? Am I too bad? You might even have reassigned yourself to the permanent JV squad in the kingdom of God. You will watch Jesus do great things in this world from the bench, but you will never play under the lights. You will never get a big piece of the action because of whatever has happened that you can't shake or whoever you still are that you can't shake. Is there such a thing as being too bad for this God to save? And is there such thing as being too bad for God to use? Not at a theoretical level, because a lot of you are like, well, of course, that's the whole point of Christianity, Ben. I mean, at a real level, I mean, you with your past and your present in this year. It's a harder question to answer when you put specifics to it. Would he, could he use you now the way you are? Or are you too bad? Could he, would he save you, put his mercy upon you the way you are now? It's a key question in this passage. I'm going to tell you up front, it's not the main question of this passage, okay? So we're going to come back at the end and we're going to, we're going to see how this big question leads us to a bigger question. But this is important, and I want you to have it in the forefront of your mind in the next few minutes as we journey through some of the, some of the stuff that Abby read uh, just a minute ago. Let's start with the basic question of who is this Samson? Some of us have to unlearn all the stuff we learned about Samson and Delilah in Sunday school. Who is this Samson? Well, he's the last judge, this last leader in this period of Israel's history where God was raising up these deliverers to protect his people, deliver his people, lead his people. And I told you a few weeks ago, this story is only going to get sadder and sadder and more and more tragic. And you'll see that in vivid color next week, even more so than this week. But Samson is one of the, one of these last leaders in this series of leaders that gets worse and worse and worse. And Samson is a guy who he, history looks at him the way history looks at a figure like Bill Clinton. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm making a historical statement. When you think of Bill Clinton, what do you think of first? His effect on the economy? Do you think of him as what historians will call one of the greatest politicians of all time? Do you think of him as a leader and a visionary? Or do you think of him as a, as a womanizer? Do you think of him and women, him and sex? That piece of his story overshadows all the other pieces of it. And Samson is a similar guy. This is a man who had legendarily successful uh, work on behalf of God's people. What he touched turned to gold. He, 
Everything he does, everywhere he goes, just success, winning, 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 winning. But throughout the the, the chapters that lead up to chapter 16 that we're looking at tonight, peppered throughout the narrative are all of these little clues, these breadcrumb trails of Samson's weakness, his eye for the ladies. Samson was a guy who saw and thought later, if ever. He was led by his eyes through life. He saw beautiful women and he ran and he went after them every time. And it's consistent in chapter 13, probably years prior, chapter 16, years later, same Samson. He's like a dog. He sees something and he runs for it. And if he ever thinks it happens a lot later, he was seducible. That's why Delilah later on there is seducing him. He's seducible. He's vulnerable. It's the chink in his armor. It's the Achilles heel of this man. Yes, he's a great leader. Yes, he's, a, he, he's this just chest full of medals, decorated veteran. But, what, but his tragic downfall, what he is also known for is this, this weakness, this failure that, that became repetitive, that became his downfall. And so this man, who you might have heard growing up, killed lions with his bare hands or killed a thousand men with the bone of an animal, is more known for this catastrophic failure. And it brings up this question. Can you be too bad to be used of God? Can you be too bad to be saved? So remember, even with this checkered past, even with all the issues going on in his life, Samson is a judge. Samson was kind of born with a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. Uh, Miraculous birth. So he starts off kind of signaled that this is a man who's close to God. God is consecrating him, setting him apart as my man. He's going to be a deliverer of my people. He's going to save my people from their enemies and from my enemies. And so he raises up this Samson and you think everything's just going to go go great. And Samson just has power and power and power. And the spirit of the Lord rests upon Samson. And that's what explains his track record, his reputation as just everything he does goes well. Over time, though, this strength and this power and this track record, Samson gets a little bit, of, little bit fuzzy about where it's all coming from. And so he, he, he begins at a place of, this is the spirit of the Lord resting on me to do the Lord's work, to a place of this is power, this is second nature, it's subconscious. I don't even really think about it anymore. I expect it, I presume upon it. It's who I am. I'm strong. I can do these things. I can do anything. After such repeated successes, after such a track record of winning, Samson forgets the purpose of the power that God had given him. And he forgets the God who'd given him the power. Okay? This is what success does in Samson. We said last week, we kind of tipped our hat at these kind of things. We said we, had a, we have a complicated relationship with competence. Gideon had a complicated relationship with competence, with success. This frightful little pastor who becomes kind of Xena warrior princess and just kills all these people by blowing a ram's horn. Suddenly, in light of his success, is just this, you know, kind of walking on clouds all of a sudden, elevated above the fray, and he's proud. 
And Samson is that on steroids. And we're prone to this too. And here's how it works. We're prone to mistake God working through us with God working in us. And those are two really, really different things. You see it clearly in Samson's life. There's a big difference in God working through Samson to deliver his people, to protect his people, to bless his people, and God working in Samson. So here's how it works in our lives. You can be a Christian and people can write you letters, even often, and stick them under your windshield wiper about how much of a difference you've made in their lives. Or, or you, you could have a, just a, a wake of your past friends who have come to know the Lord because of conversations with you. You could be growing in the responsibilities and the accolades you get in your church or your ministry. They want you to lead more and more things because of your maturity. But inside, there's this growing and gnawing disparity between who you are out here and who you are in here. And there's, this, there's, just, there's this lack of growing in grace. And there's inside of us a shortening temper, a shortening fuse year by year. A more and more peaceful relationship with our patterns of sin or our idols. A kind of a contentment with the status quo. Simultaneous to us getting the accolades and the attention. And maybe even ministry truly going well for you. Maybe it's true. Maybe people really are coming to know the Lord. Maybe people really are being blessed by your role in their life. Meanwhile, there's this disconnect, this lack of communion, lack of friendship, lack of fellowship, lack of enjoyment, lack of a sense of the beauty of Jesus, the goodness, the kindness, the sweetness of him. And this disparity, this big gap, this, these two trajectories, these rockets shooting apart from each other. Fruitful ministry, seen as successful, bearing worldly success. And my soul is declining and declining and declining. And it seems like it's getting further and further and further from any sense of communion and fellowship uh, with God. We talked last week about all these celebrity pastors you've heard about over the years who have you know, out of the blue, it just seems like they go from here to here and just these wild double lives revealed. And it's not like anybody sets out and says, I want to have two lives. I want to have, you know, two spouses. Or I want to I be one who calls my people to, to gentleness and, and forgiveness. And then I want to abuse my leaders and bully them. Nobody says those things, but it's this subtle disparity that's left unattended that grows wider and wider apart and people can have very successful lives, very successful ministries, very successful reputations in the church and a devoid kind of inner life or inner communion. And I think that's where we find Samson when we pick him up, where he is and how he is in chapter 16. He's hardened to a point of just being flippant. He's playing fast and loose with God by this point in his life, in his relationship with the Lord. Um, he's, he's frivolous with the dangers. He's presumptuous on the grace of God. God's grace isn't grace anymore. It's his wage. It's what he's owed. It's expected. It's not special anymore. He just presumes upon it. Uh, and, it's, and it's, like I said earlier, it's become fuzzy in his mind about whose strength is this. Now it's Samson's competence. It's Samson's reputation. Samson's status. And he supposes he'll always be able to stand 
in these moments of temptation, it would do us well to, to take a second to say, how does Samson, how do we, how do people get to this point? How do you start somewhere so differently than where you might find yourself to be now? How does he get there? A couple of ways I think we can see in the passage. The first is isolation. There's nobody. And you can search from chapter 13 to 16 and you'll be hard pressed to find anybody who knows Samson. And you might say, well, Delilah knows him. You know, they sit in bed whispering sweet nothings into each other. You're in a lot of talk about love and romance. What about Delilah? She knows him. Come on. Y'all are smarter than that. If you were paying attention when the passage was being read, you saw how transactional that relationship was. Samson wanted the pretty girl for whatever reason, the status or just the sex or just the intimacy. And Delilah wanted Samson for probably a lot of reasons too. Maybe the status or the, or the, the guy with the great reputation, or maybe it was just the money that she was going to get by turning on him later, turning him into her, to her, to her leaders, transactional relationship, fake love. And that's what they had. But Samson was an isolated man. He was cut off. He was a lone wolf, a lone ranger. Nobody knew his inner life. And so nobody knew to ask about it. Nobody could see the disparity because all they saw was outside Samson, not inside Samson. And we get to those places the exact same way, friends, all of us. The danger is in front of us too. Are there people on this planet who have seen all the pieces of your story? Y'all make fun of me for using this expression, but are all of the cards on the table or is there still kind of a two of clubs in the back pocket that nobody knows about? And that's the thing. That's the thing that you're holding on to. And nobody knows you because they don't know that. So they don't know what to do when you tell them, I'm, I'm feeling this way or I'm feeling that way or this happened. They don't know what to do with it because they don't have a full context of who you are and where you are. So if this describes anywhere kind of where you might be, here is God's mercy tonight in this passage to you is there is an off-ramp of sweet repentance, of faith, to begin to dialogue with him about that, about that place, that stronghold that you will not let somebody see, that you haven't let him see. But you begin to, to verbalize that to him and you begin tonight to pray for courage tomorrow to find whoever your most mature friend or whoever your, your friend with, you think that the closest communion, fellowship, friendship, sense of the Lord's goodness and grace. And you go to them and you say, hey, I need help. And I need you to see this because I need to be known. Samson wasn't known. And so every step Samson took away from God toward hardness of heart, nobody knew. All they saw was his public track record. All they saw was his answers in small group. They didn't know what lied beneath the hollowness that lied beneath that. So isolation. Second thing is, Samson uses past experiences with God as an indicator of present communion with God. Samson confuses past experiences with God as a present indicator of his communion with God. And this happens when you think someone might ask you, what's God doing in your life lately? Or, or, or what's the Lord up to? What, what do your prayers sound like lately? Not because they're trying to pin you to the wall and like hold you accountable, but because they love you. They're like, how are you doing? And we get to these places where we, we only talk in the past tense because we can't for the life of us think about anything present. So Christianity for us is what happened at 
summer camp or what happens at summer camp, not something that happens August through May. Christianity was something that happened even in middle school. Christianity was something that happened with that youth pastor back in the day or with that friend. We confuse past experiences with God as a present indicator of our communion with God and our heart slowly hardens to these places that his heart gets to. Another one, I think he uses his strengths to paper over his deficits or his weaknesses. He uses perhaps even his greatest places of strength to paper over or hide or compensate for his places of greatest weakness. And this is one that's convicting to hear about. Samson is likely um, a physically attractive guy. He's a strong guy. He's the intramural hero. He's first pick on every team because he, he's, the, he's the game maker. Uh, he's the playmaker on every team. He's the guy with the pretty girl at every formal. He's the guy who never studies for the test. He just trounces right in, takes it, finishes 20 minutes before everybody else and leaves. That's Samson. And these things, because there's just this appearance of everything's working, it's great. Those things actually paper over these enormous deficits that lie within us. And so you might be a person with an incredibly sharp intellect. You don't have to study for tests like your roommates. And that papers over this ginormous academic laziness that's never been challenged or confronted within you. A squandering of a gift nobody on planet Earth gets to have. A college education and the mobility and access it gives you. But the sharp intellect, the gift, the talent is papering over an unchallenged stronghold of indulgence inside of us or the awesome personality, the witty sense of humor papers over the purely transactional relationship posture you have towards people. I use people to get stuff from them and I get away with it because I have an amazing personality that's super personable and friendly or everybody laughs at my jokes. So nobody sees the deficit that's there. And it's not even that we try to do this all the time. It just happens. The places of our greatest strength can paper over or we'll use them to hide the places of our greatest weakness or even our greatest resistance. These are the dangers of success. Success can be dangerous too. I think you know that because we think of celebrities. We think of people who win the lottery and you're like, hey, remember where you came from. Remember your roots. Celebrities will say this, trying to remember my roots, where I came from. But low-key successes can be dangerous too, not just the high-key celebrity-level successes of people we know about in the movies. John Calvin said there's two principal things that should humble a person, should humble a Christian. Her greatest weaknesses, that makes sense, right? We've talked about that the past few weeks. That makes a lot of sense. How my greatest weaknesses would kind of, would, would, would bring me back down to earth. But he says also your greatest strengths, your greatest skills, your greatest gifts. What's strongest about you? Why? Because you're in this constant posture of Lord. Why me? Why have you been this kind to me? Why have you given me this? What have I ever done to warrant your attention in this area or your gift or your grace in this area? Calvin says both of these things bring us down and humble us as opposed to this sense of ingratitude of it's like, of course, 
Of course me. I'm just, I'm smart. I'm just good at tests. I'm just good at athletics. I'm just good looking. I'm just funny. And all of these gifts are actually our strengths now. There's a sense in which for the Christian, suffering is a safer friend than success. There's a sense for the Christian in which suffering is a safer friend, safer companion than success. John Flavel, who will make at least one person in this room very happy, or two. Um, I was talking to Nathan about this the other week, but uh, John Flavel's another Puritan And he said, outward gains are ordinarily attended with inward losses. An outward gain and outward success is often attended by an inner loss. And it's not that success is bad, friends. It's it's our relationship with it. It's our heart towards it. It's what we do with it. I like success. You should like success. I like successful surgeons who operate on me. Successful counselors who can untangle your life. But it's what we do with these successes and how it affects our heart. And so if God loves you, perhaps there's actually a sweet reason that he has woven so much weakness and suffering into your life and into your weeks. If he is for you, if he loves you, if he knows what you're susceptible to. Perhaps there's a reason for that. Um, I don't remember the name of the poet, but you'll remember a few years ago with the Syrian refugee crisis, there was a Middle Eastern poet who wrote this gripping poem. And he said in this, there's this line of no parent puts their child in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. And this is the time you saw all those capsizing boats in the Mediterranean where people were dying by the scores. And they said, no parent puts their child in a boat unless the water is safer than land. God does not put you in the water, in the choppy waters, the suffering, the trials, the obstacles, the impediments, the weaknesses, the failures that you experience. Unless the failures are more safe than the successes. Unless weakness is safer for you than strength. It doesn't, it does not mean, I mean, none of us are losing all the time. None of us are just wallowing in failure, failure, failure. It's a mixed bag, right? God is kind and he gives us successes when we can handle it. And when you can't, he protects you from it. You know the deal like me. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he gives grace to keep us humble. And he gives us humiliation when we reject humility. Mark Driscoll is one of these pastors that I've mentioned that had this fall this public kind of disastrous fall about 10 years ago. Ironically, I, I hope he's restored. I, I, I get the sense he might be, but he's, he's the one who said God's plan A is humility and his plan B is humiliation. Humiliation is where God brings Samson. I think it's in verse uh, 21. Samson, this, 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 this killer, this conqueror, this, this well-decorated veteran, This legendarily successful man, this attractive man, just walking on the clouds, this visionary of Israel, a conqueror of Israel's enemies, is now incarcerated in his enemy's prison with gouged out eyes, blind, and he's working a mill. This womanizer is now doing the work of, at that time, women and slaves, milling flour. He has fallen from the heights to the depths. And Samson needed it. 
And I think it's a mark of God's mercy to Samson. God's plan A is humility. And I think his plan B and his plan C and his plan D is humility. But when it is consistently, regularly, effortlessly rejected by his people, then plan F or G or H or I is humiliation. That we might be brought low and brought back to our senses. And so when we get to places where we just become presumptuous with God, frivolous and flippant with his grace, with his mercy, expectant that we can do whatever we want because we're strong, then he will bring us to these places. Now, I told you earlier, keep this question in your mind. Can you be too bad to be used by God? Can you be too bad to be saved by God? But I told you, that's not the main point of the passage. And actually, the stuff that we've talked about so far is scenery that I've been pointing on, out on our way to why this is in our Bible. But this is not in your Bible just for diagnostics of your heart or your pride or your success. I think you'd be a fool not to pay attention to those things. I think God is kind to show those to us. But there's a different reason this is in your Bible and you're hearing about it tonight. This is in our Bibles because it is a mirror for the first audience, Israel. Samson is a one-act play portraying what Israel's life was like, too. He is a one-man depiction of what was true of every last one of them. And the church of God in the Old Testament. And I think it's in our Bibles because it's a picture of us. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God, church of the people of God. It's a mirror. He's a depiction of our lives as well. Of how we start off soft-hearted and pliable and gentle with this God, aware of his mercies and his grace and dependent on his strengths and somehow, somewhere grow so presumptuous about it that we just grow distant and proud and self-sufficient and unbelievably in Samson's case, Samson didn't even notice it when the Lord left. How hard-hearted does a husband or a wife have to be to not even notice it when their spouse has left? Samson doesn't even know that the Lord has left. How much do you think Samson had a sense of the Lord's presence, relied on the Lord's presence, savored the fellowship and friendship of his God, loved God for God? How much of that do you think was going on when he didn't even know when he wasn't there anymore? And he went out presumptuously again. I'll use my strength. I've told her the secret of cutting off my hair and now I'll go do it yet again. You wait, you Philistines, watch what I'm about to do. I do it every other time. Don't you know who you've messed with? And he goes out and there's no power. What's the main point of the passage? You got to lead just a tad further to see it. It's verse 25. And after that, look back at your passage. Here's the main point of the passage. The people, these Philistines, after they captured him, said, bring out Samson so that he can entertain us, he can amuse us. So Samson was brought from the prison to amuse them. And they had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. Samson says to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, can I put my hands against the pillars and hold up that hold up the temple and I will rest against them. Now, the temple was completely filled with people. It was packed house. All the Philistines rulers were there. There was 3000 men and women on the roof. And they were watching. 
as Samson amused them. And Samson does something that he's almost never done before in all of these accounts about him in Scripture. He prays. After all of this had gone down, after the hardness of heart, after the years of a presumptuous, flippant, frivolous relationship with God, after years of just brushing him aside, ignoring him, going under his own steam, after all of that, Samson prays. And he says, oh, sovereign Lord, please, Lord, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, oh God. Then Samson prayed that prayer and then Samson put his hands to the two center pillars that held up the temple and pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. Remember, these are the enemies of God's people, the sworn enemies of God's people. And Samson is pushing the pillars down and the temple is coming crashing down on them. And so the postscript of the story is Samson killed more people when he died than he had during his entire life. And you wonder, wow, what an ending. What is the purpose of this? And how does that connect back to that original question of can you be too bad for God to save? Can you be too bad for God to use. We know that Samson was one of the Lords. Unbelievably, the book of Hebrews holds up Samson as an exemplar, a model of faith. Blows my mind. Samson belonged to the Lord. The Lord loved Samson. And the Lord was not done with Samson because of all that Samson had done. We get to places in our lives where we think there keep, there's just a period is going to come. What I did, what I did back then, what I've done now, there's a period. The story's over. This is where it ends. God's done. And the story of the Bible is he keeps writing and he keeps writing and he keeps writing. And Samson's saving grace is someone he never even knew was coming. He never even knew. This other deliverer, this other judge, this other savior that would come far after him. And just like Samson would do this unbelievable, unbelievably unpredictable defeat of his enemies. Samson is in this building much bigger than this and just packed thousands of the leaders of the Lord's enemies, of the, of his, of the people of Israel's enemies And with him inside, he pushes the pillars and it all comes rolling down. The way the New Testament describes what Jesus does with your enemies. Chiefly Satan. Powers of darkness. Principalities. Your sin. Your flesh. Is he gathers all of your enemies into a room with him. All of them. And he calls in the airstrikes. And they all die. That's the way the Bible describes what happens on the cross. Jesus piles all of it into himself, all of it. All of those regrets, all of the shames, all of the patterns, all of the addictions come into the room, come into the room, come into the room. And he says, let me die with this. Let me be crushed with these. That is the only reason, friends, that Samson's story sees the light of day, sees another light of day. And it's the only reason you're usable. It's the only reason you're savable. 
is because this Jesus takes upon him these obstacles between you and this God, this track record between you and this God, this heart that we have between us and this God. Samson's greatest failure, this is unbelievable, his greatest failure becomes in God's story of redemption his greatest success. That's the postscript. Samson did more for the people of God, more delivering, more saving in his death than he did in his life. I think when Samson looked back on his life, he said something that another scoundrel like him, a man, John Newton, that we talk about a lot, wrote a lot of hymns we sing here and that you know, Amazing Grace, chief among them. John Newton said in his last years of life, He said, my memory is fading and I remember only two things, that I am a great sinner and Jesus Christ is a great savior. I think Samson's retrospection, his his postscript, if he could say now, what was my life really all about? He'd say, I just really remember two things. Two things only stand out in all of those years and all of those victories and all of those escapades. In all of those pursuits, Samson is a great sinner and Jesus is a great and he's a patient savior. The apostle Paul will say the exact same thing in different words in first Timothy. This saying is trustworthy and true that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's only one kind of person he came to save sinners. And Paul says, I was the worst And he did this in me to prove to all the rest of you that he is perfectly patient. Friends, Samson's only hope was a greater judge and a greater deliverer. And that's what the book of Judges was always ever about. It's not these moral leaders for you to follow and try to mimic. The book is catapulting you onto this king who must take your enemies on himself and now empowers you to continue moving forward with the Spirit in you and on you as you join him on his mission.